Hello, dear listeners, Bailey here. Today, we are diving into the fascinating world of Web3 and decentralized databases. Join us as Andy and Frank interview Brennan Lanney, the founder of Quill. Quill is the first decentralized, community-owned SQL database solution for building advanced dApps and protocols. From the demand for Web3 solutions to the nuances of trustless applications, we delve into it all. Don't be alarmed at Frank's absence early on in the show. He shows up later. As an added bonus, for the first time in data-driven history, Andy does the intro. So sit back, relax, and get ready to embark on a journey that will expand your understanding of the ever-evolving landscape of technology and data. Now onto the show. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we talk about artificial intelligence, machine learning, data engineering, and all things kind of related to to those topics. Frank usually does this introduction. That's why I'm kind of skipping through it. I'm trying my very, very best to not say um in in any of these. Uh, Frank's going to join us a little bit later. He had something else he needed to do. Our guest today is Brennan Lamy. Did I say that right, Brennan, both names? That is correct, yes. Awesome. And Brennan, I usually go to LinkedIn and read through the lengthy bio, and and here we go. Brennan is a founder and dev. That's a pretty lengthy bio. That may be the yeah. shortest LinkedIn bio ever, Brennan. <laughs> yeah, I would say, uh, I, I don't know. I'm still working on stuff to put there, um, but... I, I'm open to suggestions. I'm open awesome. To- no, I, I think it's great. I think um, you're spending your uh, your time wisely and you've got your priorities uh, pretty much aligned there. You're 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 doing the work. And then later, once you've done the work, you can come and fill in the blanks. That's the goal. That's the goal. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, maybe what you're working on, your company? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, my name is Brennan Maroney and I am the founder of Quill. So it's just K-W-I-L, um, kind of like the quill that you, uh, that you can write with. Cool. And quill, we are building uh, decentralized databases. So relational databases specifically. Okay. Um, and really the niche that this, this fits into, um, I don't like to say that it solves an existing problem because I think it more allows people to capitalize on previously uncapitalized opportunities than solving some you know, massive problem. Uh, but what a decentralized database is for is that it allows you to build new types of applications with different trust assumptions. Um, and it, it also allows you to accrue value from your data in new ways. And so this very much falls into the Web3 space. I'll sort of give a high level overview here. And then, Andy, you can sort of choose where you want to go deeper. Uh, but with Quill, you can build data stores with uh, complex access control rules. Um, complex guarantees on the schema of the data, who's able to write to it, how they can write to it, when they can write to it. Um, And you can set this for parties that don't trust each other. So maybe you and Frank are competitors, or maybe you have to agree on some sort of uh, legal standard and collaborate in that way. But in all other senses of the word, you are competitors. And so this allows you to convene around a shared data store with rules set beforehand. And you can now use this um, in real time to power both of your applications. So Kind of at a high level, that's what we're doing. There's some really interesting caveats in uh, value accrual as well, but I can sort of jump into anywhere that you want me to. You know, I'd love to hear more about the value. Yeah. So the the, the real value of this, so 
it might be helpful with an example. I'll try to explain at high level and then I can sort of dive into a couple of examples we see right now. But so, okay. uh, you know, the, a lot of companies use data as a moat. Uh, data protects them from their competitors. But this also means that you can't collaborate on data in a lot of ways that you might like. And right. I think a cool example of this might be user identification data. So this is pretty low hanging fruit. And for what it's worth, I don't think it's uh, a particularly interesting example but it is basic, uh, things like Reddit, uh, Spotify, and Instagram, they, they all have the concept of follower relationships, uh, but right. they all have different applications otherwise. And I think mm. in a better world, uh, no matter what application you go and use, uh, you would have the same follower relationships and the same interests on all those different platforms if you consented so. Um, mm. That is a massive uh, identity problem. So you now need a way to port your identity across those as well as your, your follower relationships and your interests. Um, and all of those companies are you know, maybe somewhat competitive with each other. Uh, maybe not totally, but they are somewhat competitive. But in an ideal world, uh, they would be able to convene around some of the same sets of data to power their application. Um, this does give them less of a data moat effect, but it does make the experience much more convenient for, your, for their users. Okay. Um, so now, once again, I don't think that is the most compelling uh, application, but uh, that's like a very high level example. Well, that's a good example. I was able to follow it. And yeah, it's always a good sign. Yeah, right, right here. <laughs> I am. Um, so I'm concerned about, uh, as, as a person who moves data, I'm a data engineer, and I'm concerned a little bit about uh, personally identifying information, not picking on your example, I promise, um, from the, for the user's perspective. And then also um, that, you know, there's, there's legal uh, stuff that goes along with that in some fields. I do, um, I do healthcare. I do financial. Those insurance. Those all both healthcare and legal come together there. Uh, sorry, healthcare and finance come together in insurance companies. Um, and so, it. I, you said something that I found compelling. You said that you could convene around the data, but you could do it in such a way where you share just what you want to share, I think. And then uh, you, you know, you've got a firewall essentially or some kind of separation of concerns between that and the rest of the data. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? And, you know, specifically with, um, with regard to regulations? Yeah. So I, I think we can sort of split this up into two different topic areas. So one okay. of them is the, the logical way of accessing data. So, this is like your application business logic. Uh, should right. Frank be able to, should he be able to see my name, my age, my social security number, you know, what can he see from this data set? Mm -hmm. um, but then also there is, uh, there's sort of a, an issue of legal regulations. So whether that's GDPR or, um, you brought up healthcare data, uh, a lot of healthcare data, it matters where physically that data is being stored. And so to sort of jump into the first one, this actually gets to really the crux of our application or maybe one of the cruxes of our application which is configurable access control for your data all mm -hmm. within a single, a single file, or you can, you can do it across multiple files, but uh, the, the idea is that you can do it in a single file. Um, so we have our own language. It's a DDL language uh, or data definition language uh, called Cuneiform. And so with Cuneiform, it allows you to do a lot of, you know, regular SQL DDL for tables and, and things like that. But it, it also allows you to specify more complex access control. So, who can write data, who can read data, what data can they read from this? 
Um, and then we're also working with a couple partners right now, designing a system of uh, role-based access control. So you can assign different roles. Roles might apply to different individuals um, or to different companies or uh, really however you want to administer these roles. And these define, um, like with business logic defined in Cuneiform, what a specific user is allowed to access. Hmm. Um, moving a bit more to the regulatory side, this is less of a question of the actual features of our product itself and more of uh, a deployment issue. Uh, so you can sort of think of our, uh, when you're using a Quill database, it's distributed across multiple databases. And we work with clients to help them distribute those databases as needed uh, for their application. And this is uh, across an entire spectrum. So on one side of the spectrum where there are no data privacy rules, uh, you could actually have a network where anybody is allowed to come in and sync this data from your database. They're able to, to get these updates in real time, and then they can directly join and foreign key and uh, subquery against this in their own application. Uh, and this, obviously, no data, like no legal restrictions, uh, no access control restrictions. It's like a totally public uh, read-only data set. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you might have two companies that want to convene on healthcare data. And that healthcare data might need to be geographically located in the state of Texas. Or maybe in the case of GDPR, it needs to be, uh, one, it needs to be located in European countries, but two, they also yeah. need to be able to identify what companies are responsible for storing this data so they can go after them to make sure they delete it. Uh, mm. And so we can also make sure that, um, as opposed to the other example, that you are gating who is able to store this data, uh, where they're storing it, uh, are you KYCing the other people that are running this physical infrastructure that is uh, holding the data for your database? And we work with clients sort of across that whole spectrum on what they need for their specific deployment topologies. Well, that sounds complex. I think that's the first word that comes to mind on that. But it also sounds like um, an interesting collection of problems that we have with data. Uh, one of the reasons I get employed as a data engineer is to solve these kinds of problems where we keep data in one location, we set, uh, we sometimes ship data to other locations so that other people can use copies of it. An advantage that leaps to mind uh, based on your description of Quill is you don't have to make a bajillion copies of the data. You're able to just share, it sounds like, access. And you're uh, defining in, in this language, that is it, uh, you, you pronounce it, I believe, cuneiform? Yeah, yeah, cuneiform. Isn't that the Egyptian characters for hieroglyphics? Am I getting yeah. that right? Or <laughs> Yeah, so cuneiform it was the first written language. Uh, gotcha. so, now ours is quill. For us, it's spelled with a K. Cuneiform also spelled with a K. Other than Interesting. that, Interesting. That's yeah. kind of cool. I, I like it. And um, yeah, it sounds like you, based on the problems you're trying to solve, that it would also be a very... Um, very flexible and and, and very uh, cool language to to learn, and and I'm just curious if somebody uh, someone like me, so I'll use me as an example because I would like to know more about it. Is there some way that I can get in and play around with Quill, get a feel for it? Yeah, yeah. So just ide.quill.com. So ide and then Quill K W I L dot com. Uh, okay. That pulls up an IDE. It also comes preloaded with three different. Uh, somewhat basic examples uh, for okay. a type of application you might build on Quill. So, and I'm just pulling this up right now as a reference, but we have like an example video game that's storing data. We have uh, a token. Uh, we operate a lot in the cryptocurrency space. 
Okay. Uh, and then also an example social network. And all of these show how you would use Cuneiform uh, to, to do this. And it's, it's very straightforward. If you know, okay. if you're familiar with the SQL 92 standard, I am fully confident you'd be able to look at this and tell me exactly what is going on in this application. It's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Awesome. I'll take your word for it. Um, I, and I'm fascinated by the idea, the, um, just the whole idea of this. Uh, a little bit of company background. I'm just curious, how long has Quill been around? So Quill's been around for a little over two years now. Uh, started under a different name and doing something different, actually. So uh, we're building a decentralized social media. So a decentralized communication platform trying to incentivize serving of data in uh, areas where you're not, uh, where you're disincentivized to serve data. So I think non-Western countries where there's enforced censorship um, and our goal was trying to serve data in those areas. Now that's a massively hard problem. And there's yeah. so many, uh, so many issues with, I mean, consistency and the cryptographic, uh, like verifiability of that data that uh, yeah. we, we were trying to solve that. And in solving that, we sort of solved this uh, database use case of building this decentralized database. And we ended up just running with that instead because it was much more applicable to a wider variety of applications than just the specific one that we were building. Um, and so nice. we spent about the first year building that social. And then last uh, January or February, we, uh, or, yeah, last January or February, we transitioned to just doing the database specifically. Okay. Well, I love the pivoting. I, I just do. I think that's always a good thing to go with. Um, and, you know, you'll, I've seen many companies kind of go through these phases where they'll do exactly what you did. They'll start out trying to solve one problem, realize there's this other niche that they could really serve. And then later, sometimes even expand back out. Uh, that happens uh, sometimes as well. But I'm old and I've seen a lot of companies. So <laughs> that that, that kind of happens. Um, well, so we talked about uh, cuneiform, which is a language you guys, I guess, invented that. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's really a DDL language, like okay. it's not a full, like, uh, you know, full, uh, full language, but it's, yeah, it's useful for defining access control. But yes, that was, that was okay. made in house. So talking about access control, I know one of the, uh, you know, one of the challenges to that is row level or even cell level, uh, you know, the, uh, access control, how, how fine a grain do y'all go to? It's a great question. So uh, there's sort of two things I can touch on there. So th the answer is technically both. So uh, okay. with Quill uh, or with, with Cuneiform, we have this concept of actions. Um, and action, you can sort of think of it like a function that anybody can call. It's like a, it's an RPC call that anybody can call, or you can set rules for who's able to call it, and it executes some query against a database. And so this can be an okay. insert statement. It can be a select statement. And so you might have a select statement that is able to get some user's data um, and maybe from, maybe it gets some data from a few rows and retrieves a couple of the columns within that row. And so in that way, you can sort of make custom access control for columns. And then another thing we have, and uh, let me know if this doesn't make sense because this is a bit more of like a Web3 native concept, okay. um, but we have, we call it a caller modifier. And so what this is, is that when you're interacting with Quill, you have a key pair, and this is how we do uh, user identification. And so, uh, when you are using uh, when you're using this key pair, it takes the address of that sort of thing, like a public key of mm -hmm. that key that you're signing your, um, your 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 insert statement with, or your update, or your select, or anything else. 
and it can use that public identifier as a parameter in an action. So uh, let's say we have an application that is storing a list of user data. Let's say, let's say it's just storing your, your name and your age and you're identified by your, by your key pair. Mm -hmm. um, you might only be able to go and update the row where the, uh, where the caller matches your key pair. And so that means that you and Frank can both have rows in the same database, but mm -hmm. only you are able to update yours, only he is able to update his. You can also set access control restrictions on who is able to read from which ones. Okay. Uh, does that make sense? It does. That's a great example. And, uh, you know, especially using like a customers slash people table. Um, and I, I, I'm I'm impressed by the answer itself. I mean that's that's a hard problem to solve as well. So um, and doing that and then when we talk about user access, is this something that is designed for use? Uh, obviously, it's happening bet between companies. You talked about competitors. Is this is this setting in the wild or are there you know ports open to the big bad web? Sorry, could could you restate that question? I think I might have. <laughs> That's you. okay. So I know you mentioned that uh, the database and the access control controls access between um, competing entities, maybe companies that compete with each other, but they want to share some portion of data. So I'm wondering, um, does is Quill hosted in such a way that it can be accessed from the uh, you know the web at large, uh, the entire interweb or internet rather? I said interweb. I was thinking that and going, don't say it, don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> the entire internet, um, and, and and if so, um, you know, what are your concerns about security? Yeah, so that's a great question. So uh, once again, this does sort of come back to the, the two prongs of uh, uniform access control and then mm -hmm. just general network access control for your database. Uh, and so cuneiform access control, you can sort of think of this like a REST API where um, they, they can, you know, it's a client server architecture and okay. anybody can make calls to the actions you have defined. So maybe it's get the get the most recent uh, you know record inserted into the database uh, or in, into a table. Um, maybe, maybe that's an action you have, and anybody can call that and get the most recent record. Um, and so in that way, uh, you have uh, I mean configurable access control. So you can make that totally public, where anybody's able to access that. You can also make it so only a specific whitelist of individuals that you want are able to access that. And right now, how we identify those individuals is with key pairs. Um, so gotcha. um, now we're not specifically tied to the key pair structure. This is just, um, it, it's really just what our you know, early clients have needed. And so that's why we use key pairs for uh, user authentication. Um, and then getting to uh, like the general, because you had also asked about uh, people, just anyone on the internet being able to access this data, um, yeah. this gets a lot more into network deployment topology. And so with this, you might have a database network where you know everybody that's running these, you know, the infrastructure for it, and they are running that closed. So, you know, like a private Postgres or uh, you know, MySQL server, uh, nobody, like you're the only ones that are able to access that, or you know everybody who's able to access it. But okay. on the, on a, I guess the flip side of that, you can also run a version where anybody can come and hook into your data and it doesn't really right. cost you anything extra. So the whitelist in that case would just be everyone. Yeah, so okay. uh, I, I think a, a useful way to think about it would be in that case, uh, everybody is able to see the logs that are coming into your database. So mm -hmm. um, 
you know, we have the, the actual consensus layer. So we don't use wrapped, but you can sort of think of it like a wrapped consensus layer. And then below that, we actually have the data storage. So uh, they can essentially come and be a part of that consensus layer. Maybe they can only uh, read from it, but uh, right. they can come and read from these logs before they're executed on the database. Um, when you use Cuneiform, that is defining access control for them coming and accessing your database. Uh, okay. They can't see all of the logs. Does that make sense? It does, and it's a interesting and and very powerful sounding uh, paradigm that you've that you've surfaced there. And it's not that I'm not throwing off on traditional relational databases when I say that. It's uh, almost like a combination of what you would expect from relational databases, or maybe even you know NoSQL databases. But built on top of that is a little bit more beef in the access control space, and. That you know has typically been the um, kind of the purview of the application developers. They manage that part, and it sounds like you've baked that right into your uh, your database control. So I I like that a lot. Um, yeah, that part of it. It's a really interesting trade-off because uh, you know a lot of early databases, and this is true for I would say you know I mean most major ones. I believe SQL Server, but I know Oracle, uh, MySQL, and Postgres. They have baked in user access control that most people don't really use. Most people actually build their access control, uh, you know, at their on like their API layer. Right. Uh, but for our case, because of the unique environments that this is being used into, we need to bake in access control logic in a different way than these databases already do. But we need to bake that in directly to the data itself, um, yeah. and that is what allows us to sort of open up new use cases that previously were not possible. Well, again, sounds very powerful, and um, I imagine business is growing. Yeah, yeah, it's going quite well. That's that's excellent to hear. I always uh, I enjoy hearing success stories. They uh, they inspire me as well. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of a uh, some more stuff about it. I got I've got my head around the basics, I think, but. It's going to be, I know me, it's going to be like eight o'clock tonight. I'm going to go, I should ask him this. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, I know you're running this one, this one solo without Frank right now. Um, so. Well, yeah, and Frank thinks, so Frank thinks differently uh, than I do. We're, we both started as uh, developers and then we moved into data. And in Frank's case, I had to beg him for about 10 years to get him to go into data, specifically business intelligence because Frank is an artist at heart. So he already does pretty pictures, you know, and I still can't color in the lines. So I was like, you can do this whole analytics thing, Frank, you've got a good eye for it. And he got there. It was just, he kind of came around it at a different way. And he's told me about a hundred times you were right. Uh, <laughs> Should have yeah. done that years ago, <laughs> but, um, and he's a, he, he, because of the way he thinks, it's it's different than the way that I think. I kind of approach. I don't know. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm not com comparing and contrasting. It's just different. And, and I work with a number of people in in different fields where it's it's very productive to work with. Frank's as a, Frank's more of a data scientist, but he's also a data engineer. He's old school data science. Um, and I, I work. Of course, I work well with him. We were, we were friends before we started working together. And then um. Uh, a handful of database administrators, I find that because I, whenever I see a problem that needs to be solved, my developer roots are my first response. That's my knee jerk. Let's go write some code, you know, to do this in some language and try and figure it out that way. And my DBA friends are all, well, 
you know, we can store some business logic here in a view or a store procedure and access it that way. And it's 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 a different approach. I th I but I'm you know, I know enough about both to be dangerous, I'd say. And that's why I'm, I'm very it's very appealing to me. I I've done a little bit of web work uh, there for a while. Um not not in your league. I I built a website that began to get a little popular. And I hired a, a web developer to take a look at it. And he looked at it. He, he His first response to me was, this looks like an engineer built it. And I'm like, I am an engineer. That's I thought I took it as a compliment. You laughed because you know it's not a compliment. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. We, we I kind of suffer from the same thing. Um, you know, very very engineering focused. We have a very engineering focused culture. Like everyone at our company writes code. Even the guy that does our finances and payroll. Um, wow. Everybody here is now in different amounts, obviously, but. Sure. Everyone writes code, and so when it gets to a bit more of the creative side. Uh, I don't want to say we we struggle there, but it's where we have struggled a bit in the past. It's, it's something we've gotten quite a bit better at. Um, mm. But yeah, we you can tell our applications were built by engineers. They're, <laughs> they might not be the prettiest thing in the world, but they're they're very pragmatic. Um, yeah, absolutely. So and and see, I don't even notice uh, when I see things like that. I don't I don't even notice them. But here, Frank's back, so we have to stop talking. Well, talking bad about him, we can talk about him still, but we only have to say the good things. Welcome back, that's, Frank. That's funny. Thank you for your patience. Uh, one of these days, I will explain all of this publicly to our <laughs> listeners and and whatnot. But uh, there's a good reason for my absence there. Um, yeah, no, I heard about uh, it, it. I heard this funny thing, and this is how Andy and I met. Where you know, you you said these apps look like they're written by engineers, <laughs> and that's kind of this back and forth Andy and I have about like design and whatnot. So Frank's it's pretty funny. the designer. Yeah. So. Brennan was explaining to me that everyone at Quill codes. Really? Even the, even the finance people. Code. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. For what it's worth, we're a seven-person team. You know, it's not like we're a we're a huge company, but uh, yeah, everybody. I mean, uh, everybody knows how to code and writes some amount of code. Um, they might not have done that when they came in, but they they picked it up in one way or another. How do people react to that? Do they like the idea or do they kind of bristle or you tell them in the interview that, hey, we're doing this? So it's interesting. We it, it's not like we hired people like, yeah, you will learn to code when you come here. It, it's almost just <laughs> an inevitability. Uh, we're solving a very technical product for a very technical group of users. Right. And so it's sort of inevitable that, you know, you're, you're going to learn how to how to code to some extent uh, working in that job, um, really, no matter what, like what role you have. And so it's not like a hard, fast rule we have in the company where you have to learn how to code. Um, it just, it inevitably has happened every time. So. Interesting. Yeah. And and Frank, the I'll give you my understanding of a synopsis of, of what, well, what their database does. Um, it's, it's like a relational database, but built into it is this user access control. And it's like coupled uh, to that, to the extent that they can do not only row level but row column level security and access control. Interesting. How do I do, Brennan? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's good for a high level overview. I think it's good yeah. for a high level. Um, but I'm happy to sort of jump into any of the specifics that you'd like, Frank. So, so tell me, how do you? How does that work? You do role level control or cell level control? Is it is it role based access control, attribute access control? 
some combination? Yeah, so uh, kind of neither. So uh, we do authentication with key pairs. So anybody who wants to use the database, they have to have a, uh, a public-private key pair, um, like an ECDSA key pair. And you can set rules for what keys are able to do what in your database. Um, and, and so we have our own language for defining this. We call it cuneiform. Uh, it's, cuneiform was the first ever written language. Uh, we thought that yeah. might be fitting for our, our language. And so our language, it's a, it's a DDL language. So um, it sort of specifies the structure for your database. And then all of your DML is done with uh, SQL. But uh, with this DDL language, you can specify what we call actions. And you can sort of think of these like RPC calls or functions where uh, they, they're going to execute some DML against the underlying database. So this could be an insert or an update or a delete, or it can be a select. Uh, and you can set all these interesting rules for who is able to do this, when they're able to do this. Do they have to transfer some sort of value and able to do this either once or every time they do it? Um, or do they have to have um, some role that applies to them that allows them to do this? Uh, and you know, since we're able to identify people by their key pair, uh, when Andy comes in and uses and you know interacts with the database, I can tell that he is distinctly different from you, and I know what Andy is allowed to do. Um, and there's even a small amount of programmability that can be fit into that. So uh, you know, when Andy is hitting one of those actions or RPC calls. Uh, that might give him uh, results or allow him to do certain things that you would not be allowed to do if the database is configured that way. Interesting. Interesting. So you have really fine green control over what, who can do what. Yeah. You know, I, I might hesitate to say fine grained because it's, it, it is fine grained. You can really set whatever, um, however you can think to specify what someone can do in SQL, you can, you can really do that with access control, um, but we don't implement it with a fine-grained approach. I think a lot of the time, uh, databases that are really trying to iterate on the access control front, uh, they they get really into row and column level access, and that's not quite what we do. Um, we sort of see our role as you know an iterating for access control on two different layers. Uh, the first one is on the actual consensus layer. So you know if you think in a traditional data system, this is where your raft consensus logs are, are sitting before they get executed on your data layer. We don't use raft, uh, but um, so that is the first place where we're able to have access control. So this is you know, network-wide access control, who can read what data coming in. And then secondly, we define, uh, and this is for more client-server access control um, or for people that are trying to read from the database um, at any point in time, but you can think of this I don't want to say like a REST API, but a little bit more like a REST API than a traditional database where you can have preset queries and uh, preset functionality that certain people are able to do or certain groups of people are able to do in certain instances. Uh, but the ways that you can combine these things, uh, you, can, you, can, you can combine it to do very granular access control, but that's not really where we attack the problem. Where did you get the idea for this? Because this was fascinating. Yeah, so it's interesting. It's been a little bit of a of, of a ride. So uh, we started by building a a decentralized uh, communication platform. So really trying to incentivize um, serving data in places where you're otherwise disincentivized. So think non-Western countries where there's enforced censorship or IP blocking. Um, how can we incentivize people to use things like HTTP tunnels to uh, spread data? 
Um, not really hard to build a business on that. And so sort of how we iterated from there was we took the data infrastructure for that and we started providing that as a standalone service. And this is actually where the access control part of this got really interesting. Um, we started talking to a lot of projects that, um, you know, they're building some sort of data store. They have some data intensive application, uh, but they're not looking to build that as a data moat. They're looking to build that as a composable, you know, data building block that other applications are able to directly import. Just like how you import a line of code or you know, a package of code into your application, uh, you should be able to do that with data as well, assuming you, you're applying to all the different access controls. And so what we're helping a lot of customers do now is they can take their different data sets and uh, people, whether they're collaborators, clients, or competitors, they can use that data in the ways that uh, that that the you know originator, the original data creator specifies, um, and then also they can set interesting mechanisms for how value accrues back to them. Um, but it, it's really just been a process of iteration from you know that initial idea of building shared data stores, and then um, building more complex access control mechanisms on top of that. Does that make sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. It's a fascinating. It's just fascinating because every time you think that we 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 kind of solved all the problems, particularly in the in the in the data storage and the data querying side of things, there's a whole new layer that gets unfolded, and there's just enormous opportunity. And it's really cool because like I'm reading your bio, and like you were still in school when you started this company. Like that's and you you started a, your first company when you were 16, and you had 15. <laughs> You <laughs> had 15 employees before even going to 15 or 16 employees before even going to college, man. That's, that's impressive. I have to say. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate it. It's honestly just been a lot of being in the right place at the right time. Not my mm -hmm. first company it was not a tech company. Uh, it was digging holes and uh, cutting down trees and digging up bushes in Idaho. Um, but that was, that was my first company. Um, and then this one I started uh, during COVID on a gap year uh, from college, but no, very yeah, cool. it's honestly just been, um, being in the right place at the right time and uh, doing something that people find interesting. That is so cool. I mean, like you think about the last couple of years, a lot of people would say, oh, it's a terrible time to start a business. But we've seen a couple of instances where it's actually turns out to be a really good. Like we talked to a bunch of folks, some, some probably by the time this goes out, this shows will be out. But like this whole there's this whole opportunities that I think are just popping up left and right because of data, because of AI, because of you know, uh, distributed applications and stuff like that. There's just, it, it's, we're going to look back on these as, these as the good old days of entrepreneurship and, and opportunity. Yeah, hopefully. And, and you know, I, I would say that is actually um, like this, the last uh, year, maybe 18 months has been probably the only time where we could have started a, a, um, a product like this. Um, so mm -hmm. particularly in the growth of Web3, a lot of our beachhead markets are, sort of bridging that gap from uh, the traditional space to Web3. Uh, we find a, a lot of our initial partners, um, they have a lot of their clients are based in the traditional world, but their data engineering problems are uniquely solved by what is provided in Web3. And there's enough demand for this, uh, for our specific solution to, to warrant a product. You know, it's only really existed in the last uh, year or so. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, whether or not this is a good time to start a business. Um, I would say one, I don't know, but also I don't think uh, I, I care too much. Like uh, 
the need for what we are doing has really only just started existing, but it very clearly does exist. Um, and that's, that's, I think was pretty exciting about it. So you said web three and I, it's interesting because when, when most people think of web three, they think, uh, they think blockchain, right. Uh, and thanks to SBF that is kind of cratered, I would say. Uh, although I, I, I'm still don't the crypto kids better not hate on me. Like I'm still a believer in blockchain as a whole, as, as an idea. I don't think, I think currency is only one of the things that you can do with it. Um, and two, the, the, the metaverse, right. And obviously I think the metaverse, obviously Facebook is stumbling on it. Like, but, but it's interesting that the data portion of it is probably more relevant than any of the other two and you don't hear the negative press about kind of this distributed data stores and to the uh i just interesting i think that you're part of the web three have you found that the labeling yourself part of web three has been a uh has turned from a positive to a negative basically yeah i think so um yeah you know some people they might get kind of turned off on it you know you might talk to a candidate and when we say we're because we do classify ourselves as a web3 company right um and when we say that they're like oh like you know i, I don't really believe in that cryptocurrency stuff and I, I think that's fine, but I don't think Web3 is cryptocurrency. Uh, right. I mean, Web3 is a new type of distributed application or distributed databases, honestly. I mean, we do, uh, I, I would say not just distributed, uh, permissionless, decentralized mm. and permissionless. That makes um, sense. With Web3 applications, we're able to relax a lot of the trust assumptions that are made in other applications, um, in particular trust assumptions between the client and the server. And so that, like, just forget about cryptocurrency and the metaverse and tokens with dogs on them and everything else. Uh, that is what Web3 is. It is relaxing trust assumptions in, uh, you know, otherwise more traditional, uh, you know, client server and uh, not even client server, but just like general uh, computer architecture models. And so that's what we're doing. Um, you know, I don't really care what the price of cryptocurrency does. I don't own any cryptocurrency. Right. Um, we're just building, uh, you know, trustless applications. No, that's a good way to put it because when you, you know, uh, you're obviously your company's doing well and 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 you're growing and and you've had a pretty, you know, good run. Well, Susie said Web three, and I'm like, but but you're doing well. <laughs> I was like, but but but. <laughs> then, then I, then I, then like you know, after you, that's why I wanted to ask that. And now you explain it. You're right. Like Web three is, you know, um, it's kind of like, uh, kind of like Beyonce, right? Like nobody, hardly anyone remembers what group she was part of, right? I think uh, God, Destiny's Child. There were like three or four singers in there, right? But, but you know, one of them, one of them has the 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 fame and staying power. The other ones, not so much. No disrespect to them, if the weird off chance that they're actually listening to a show about AI and data science, <laughs> but, um, you know, no, I just, it's just interesting. Like, you know, and we think of all these technologies, like I'm old enough to remember one web one Oh, right. And all the crazy ideas, uh, particularly one of them was, um, you know, downloading Java applets, right. Jo downloading software from the internet and running it locally. Right. Well, that's called the app store. Now we don't even think about it. Right. But obviously there are a lot of things that failed in that era. Right. Same thing with web 2.0. We're kind of, saw that kind of come and go. And I think the same is going to be true here. You know, like, you know, did we really need, you know, sock puppets to sell us stuff, you know, sell us dog food. Right. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, I remember very early on, there was a startup called, um, there were all the Java people who made Java basically 
started a company called Castanet or Rumba. I forget which one it was. But their big thing was they wanted to create what we would call an app store, but for applications, right? And and that idea resurfaced somewhere completely different. And now it's just part of like just the daily world we live in. So it's it's interesting. I think that we always seem to remember the Hindenburgs of history, but not necessarily <laughs> kind yeah. of the the the, yeah. the the stuff that actually does work out. Oh, I, I absolutely, and I, I think that'll be the the case with uh, you know Web Web three as well. Uh, a lot of the people, in particular, a lot of the really loud people that we're that were operating in Web three, you know, now that the the, the prices of things are down, they've kind of gone on to whatever the next thing it is they're going to do to try to make a quick buck. Um, but the people that are building really useful and interesting things, m most of them will stay around. You know, some of them will fail. Uh, you know, businesses fail, um, but. You know, it's something I've noticed because I was also here when Web3 was really popular, right? When, when working in Web3 was the cool thing to be doing. Um, and something I've noticed is that the people that are building actually useful applications and solving actually hard problems, uh, they're still here. Um, you know, they're not as loud as the other people that were here before, but the, that, that's fine. Like the, the actual core problems that we want to solve are still being solved. And, and I, I think that there's a lot of value in solving those problems. And so um, th there's less people, but there's a higher concentration of high quality people building in the space now. And I think that's what matters. Well, and now that it's quieted down some, y'all can get more work done. <laughs> that is uh, very true. That's very true. Um, yeah, which has also been quite helpful. Well, we are going to transition uh, to the questions part. I hope you got a copy of the questions in advance. If you didn't, I put them in chat. So if you'd like to uh, peruse them, um, the very first one is, uh, I think you've explained it, but um, it's, a, it's a softball uh, for you. Uh, how did you find your way into data? Did uh, data find you or did you find data? Yeah, so I kind of inadvertently found my way into data. So I wanted to solve this other problem that was present in the messaging application. And mm -hmm. uh, that really required me to dive, I don't want to say super deep into data. It required me to dive super deep into a few things. Um, but it was in building infrastructure for that, that I found that there, there was a real opportunity if I went and you know, doubled down and went even deeper into data. And so, uh, you know, for me, it was really just kind of looking at, uh, at what the market wanted, you know, when we're working with design partners and potential customers, what is their feedback? And it kind of pointed towards going deeper into data. And so that's how I found my way into it. Nice. Interesting. So what's your favorite part of your current gig? Uh, so I would say like uh, the, the team I work with. So our team is really tight knit. Um, most teams now are remote. Um, al almost every startup now is a remote startup, especially in the you know, quote unquote web three space. Uh, we are in person. So uh, you know, the entire team is in the room right next to me. And honestly, we're all really close. We all really believe in the problems we're solving. We do believe we're building a better and a more fair internet. And so that makes it really fun to work here. You know, even if the hours might be a little longer than they would be at another job, um, it's, it's really fun to work here. Uh, we all really get along and uh, we work well together. And so that's certainly my favorite part. And you're in Austin now, right? We are in Austin, yeah. Our team Which is, is a really Austin. thriving tech scene right now. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're young and work in tech, it's the the place to be, and so it's very awesome. Fun. Awesome. So we have three complete the sentence statements, not really questions. 
The first is when I'm not working, I enjoy blank. Yeah, so I am, I'm a, not a, I live in Texas, I guess not as much, but uh, I'm a really big skier. So I grew up snow skiing. Um, nice. Yeah, I, I'm from Idaho. And so it's kind of a common thing there. Um, and so, yeah, I did a ton, a ton of skiing growing up. I do, uh, I ski raced, I do backcountry skiing now. So a lot of, like hiking, skinning, I've got like avalanche training, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I would say that if I, you know, if I was no longer working uh, and I, I couldn't, you know, I, I love what I do and I would do it, you know, even if I wasn't making money doing it, but if I was no longer working, I would probably go ski. Very cool. Um, another complete the sentence. I think the coolest thing in technology today is. Yeah. So ah, I'm, I'm a little torn here. I think either, um, <laughs> uh, permissionless networks. So, um, I mean, people usually think of this as cryptocurrency layer ones, but I think it extends sort of beyond that, but any network that is permissionless and allows people to, it, it functions as, as a protocol um, and it doesn't have biases towards individuals. I think that's really interesting and has a lot of potential uh, or SQLite. I really like SQLite. I think it's a really awesome piece of technology. I know it's not exactly the newest thing, but I think it's still of the things I've worked with. SQLite is really cool. Nice. All right, our last one. I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank. Ooh, interesting. Interesting question. Um, I think for me, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to being able to use, and I, I, I think we're, we're almost there, um, but being able to use uh, AI programming to help us write unit tests and get full context of our code base. Um, I've been using GitHub Copilot for I think maybe nine months now, eight months now, and it's honestly changed my life. Uh, <laughs> it's I don't know if you guys have used GitHub Copilot. Uh, would highly recommend trying it. Uh, it has just my productivity has skyrocketed, and now it's only able to handle a fairly small set of context. Like I believe it only has context for the file or maybe a couple of the most recent files you've worked in. Um, but you know, uh, there there have been a couple uh, demo models, and unfortunately, they're in private beta right now. Um, but where there are AI, AI models that can help you generate unit tests, and they can read through an entire package of code you've written and see, oh, you might have a security vulnerability here, or uh, are you sure you actually meant to expose this in your public API? Um, just those are sort of a lot of the foot guns I still find myself running into, and I think we're almost to the point where uh, that that uh is is solved hmm. wow very cool would highly recommend trying out copilot if you haven't it's been it's been pretty crazy i will check so, it out yeah i've done Are a we, couple of demos with it you know just to it's kind of like you know walk through follow the instructions type stuff it's not the same as when you're trying to solve a real, a real problem real world problem so i know enough to know that i was still impressed but i haven't yet taken it to that next level yeah, you know, it, yeah. it's not super useful for writing large blocks of code. Uh, mm -hmm. It is useful as autocomplete. So, um, I mean, like a place I use it, most of our stack is in Golang. Golang has pretty verbose error handling. Um, okay. It's really helpful with that. Um, ju like just nice. with that alone, it's doubled my productivity because it pretty much handles all of the error handling for me. Wow. So That's impressive. Very cool.
Um, uh, share something. Wait, uh, which question did we do? Yes, uh, share something is next in that list, but that's my list and it may be out of order. No, 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 it is. Share something um, different about yourself. Uh, but remember, we like to keep our iTunes uh, clean rating. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, man, that's a that's I think that's the toughest one yet. Um, I I had scanned through these questions before the podcast, but I uh, I did not think of this one. Um, man, let me think of that one for a sec. Um, I don't know if you don't mind me asking, what would uh, what would your answers for this be, and maybe that'll help me come up with something. Oh, I mean, like one of one of mine was because uh, we did this on on each other. We should probably re up that, Andy. Uh, okay, was really I used sure. to, one of my first jobs was I was an EMT in the Bronx. Okay. Yep, and for me, uh, I, I have a similar one to Frank. Um, I played guitar in a country rock band. Okay. Wow, that's that's really cool. Um. Oh man, I already brought up the the skiing thing. That one's tough. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, how did you? Here's here's one. I'll help you out. Like, how did you start a landscaping company? Like, like when you were 16. Like, how many 16 year olds do you know that just say, you know what, I'm gonna, like, how did that happen? Like, yeah, it's that's just impressive. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That, that, thank you. I appreciate the help here. Um, <laughs> it's uh, so. I, I grew up in Idaho and we were we were a ways outside of Boise. And so we had quite a bit of land and it wasn't, you know, nice. Not, I mean, it, it, don't get me wrong, it's, it's like a great place to live, but it wasn't like, uh, like, like, you know, we had to do it like fire breaks, um, you know, a lot of irrigation work, uh, things like that. And so um, growing up, uh, we, when, you know, me and my brothers were really young, we had a guy who would come and help us do that. But as we got older, we started, you know, our family did it ourselves. And he hired me and I would just kind of help him as an extra hand. He did this for people all over. And I just kind of had a realization not that far into the job. where I was like, man, I could definitely do this myself. And I think I could, um, you know, probably pay myself a little bit better. And so I just, uh, I, I started small, started with one. Like I didn't immediately quit my job or anything. I did quit my job fairly quickly, but uh, I started with a couple small clients, just seeing if it was something I could handle. You know, none of it was rocket science. And so I figured that out. Um, I started scaling up more from uh, like, you know, mowing lawns to fire breaks and digging drainage ditches, a uh, little bit of demolition work. It's just a, a bit higher margin. Um, but yeah, I honestly just started one step at a time. I got one client, I got two clients, and then I got 10. Um, I had a couple buddies that would come out and help me. And it was just really, you know, as opposed to a business like, like this one, where it, uh, you know, it's very technically focused and you're raising VC dollars and things like that. This was, uh, I, I, I worked out of a Ford Escape until I could afford a pickup truck and then I bought a pickup truck and then I, so it was, it was, it was a little bit of a different process, but yeah, that was kind of how I got into it. Yeah, that's cool. That is cool. Do you listen to audiobooks? It's funny. I just saw that question. I just got an Audible uh, subscription two days ago. Um, wow. Yeah. One of my coworkers recommended a book to me and I don't have a lot of time to actually sit down and read, but I walk a lot. And so uh, I got Audible for that. So uh, I'm, it's a really good book, would really recommend. Uh, it's called Children of Time. It's like, if you're into sci-fi, mm -hmm. uh, it's like a post-apocalyptic sci-fi book where um, there are humans, they've, they've left earth and they're, um, I, I forget how far, but they're, they, they've been traveling for like 2000 years and they're now trying to recolonize a new planet. Um, and it's just sort of all of the, 
I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, <laughs> it's about that. But it, it's it's really good. If you like sci-fi, cool. I would highly recommend. I'll check it out. And um, you can check it out, too, to our listeners. Uh, Audible is a sponsor of the show. And you go to thedatadrivenbook.com or thedatadrivenbook.com, depending on how you want to pronounce it. True. Um, yeah. uh, Andy assures me that that link is working. And uh, I have my faith in Andy. <laughs> it was working a couple of hours ago. We did another recording. It's a two-recording day. And it Maybe. was working then. Yeah, no, no, it could have been, could have been my setup because I was, I was doing some weird stuff with DNS to get something else working. It's always DNS, Frank. It's always DNS. (laughs) Um, So where can people, I'm sorry, go ahead, Andy. That's okay. You, you do it, Frank. I was going to say the same thing. Where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Yeah. So, I mean, the first one is just our website. So quill.com, K-W-I-L.com. Um, uh, I've also got a Twitter. That's probably the easiest way to get to me. Um, so my Twitter is just my name. So Brennan underscore Lamy. Um, but you can also find links to Quill's Twitter and inevitably to, to mine as well on our website. So I would say the biggest one is just going to quill.com. Um, it's probably the easiest. Okay. Excellent. That sounds good. Yeah. And uh, any parting thoughts? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, really, thank you. Thank you all for having me. Um, I, it, it's hard to find people that uh, are as passionate about, you know, weird data engineering problems as I am. And so it's really been a pleasure. Uh, talking <laughs> to you guys. Awesome. We're happy to talk to other people who are into data engineering, too. Wow. Well, that was quite the show. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll let it's Bailey always good to hear a good entrepreneur origin story. One last thing before you go. We know you're busy and we appreciate you listening to our podcast. But we have a favor to ask. Please rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to us. You have subscribed to us? Haven't you? Having high ratings and reviews helps us improve the quality of our show and rank us more favorably with the search algorithms. That means more people listen to us, spreading the joy. And, can't the world use a little more joy these days? So, Go do your part to make the world just a little better and be sure to rate and review the show.